Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. I'm flying solo today. My co-host, Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute, is otherwise occupied. But we have an exciting program today. We have a return guest, Martin Gurry, who is the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of of Authority in the New Millennium, I believe is the full title. Uh, So, Martin, welcome back. Hey, yeah, fun fun to be back. I guess nothing much has happened since uh, we last talked, huh? That's right, yes. Uh, and in fact, when we set this recording, uh, when, when we set the time to do this a couple weeks ago, I thought, oh, well, you know, it's very timely for us to have uh, you back on the show because of all the stuff with the coronavirus and other things. And, and as it turns out, you know, it's always it's always timely to have you back on the show, but uh, not necessarily always for the same reason. Uh, so, I should say we are recording this on the afternoon of June 10th. Uh, so the alien invasion has not happened yet, right? So uh, whatever happens between now and the release, whether it's the the aliens or anything else, uh, you know, it, maybe this will be a nice time capsule for people to. Uh, to, to look back fondly on the simpler times that we're living in now. For sure. Yeah. So obviously we, uh, we've done a prior episode on your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about how the themes in your book relate to current events, but since not everyone who is listening to this episode is probably tuned into the prior episode, although they should, uh, let's maybe we could start with giving, you know, kind of a, a quick overview of your book and the kind of general thesis. It came out originally, I believe, in 2014. Correct. So it, at, that, at that point, we, I think the big, the big um, episodes that were kind of the, the, the guide stars of the book were, would, have, would have been the Arab Spring and Occupy. And of right. course, then a bunch more stuff has happened. Uh, but uh, why don't you just t- tell us what, you know, what's the kind of overview of the book and, and how you how you think about current events, the framework that you have? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was um, an analyst of global media for CIA for many, many years. And so I was in the privileged spot to watch the... Um, uh, the sweep of the information tsunami that was sort of generated by the digital uh, revolution. Um, and uh, basically, it w- what fascinated me were two things. Were one, the gigantic volume of information, unprecedented in, in, in uh, human history, and I can give you numbers if you want, otherwise, otherwise not. Um, but also the effect that this gigantic volume had uh, on societies, and I, I was—I watched um, as this tsunami kind of rolled across the world because people digitized at different uh, speeds. And right behind that, invariably, you could see ever increasing social and political turbulence. So I thought, hmm. Um, I um, I left CIA and decided to study the matter further, and um, 
basically what I concluded on looking at what was going on because the, this this uh, turbulence only increased um, was that um, the institutions that we have today uh, were shaped by essentially principles that made great sense in the 20th century, the industrial age, but absolutely maladapted to the digital age. Uh, they require to maintain their, their legitimacy and their authority, a kind of a um, semi-monopoly over information in their own domains. And in the 20th century, if you were in government, you, you had a pot of information that nobody could get at but you. If you were the media, the news media, you sat on those current events. Nobody knew what was going on unless you told them. Uh, same thing for uh, academia, the same thing for business. Everybody sat on their part of information that was more or less theirs. So when they spoke to, to us as the general public, the mass audience, we listened. They had authority. What happened with this massive information was suddenly um, these, uh, these authoritative institutions started to sound weird. We knew sometimes when they were wrong. We knew that they made predictions that failed. We knew sometimes when they were tendentious that they were just giving us part of the of the answer, and that we could see that there was more information that they weren't talking about. And almost immediately, these informations lapsed into a state of crisis, and um, and the the typical um, form that this this crisis took was what I call the revolt of the public. The public could now basically gather in the streets in gigantic numbers without organization, without, um, uh, without uh, any uh, even knowing one another, without structure, without leaders, without PR. They met on Facebook. They met online. Uh, nowadays, it's more in a, some encrypted app like, like uh, WhatsApp or, or Telegram. Uh, and they said, let's show up at the city square. And suddenly, there was a million of them. Um, this began probably the very first uh, serious uh, demonstration of this was the Arab Spring, but it has been uh, increasing. I mean, it, 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 um, the year 2019 had at least 25 to 30 significant uh, street insurgencies. Another demonstration of that is also um, what now people call populism, which is essentially the public turning to a person that says, no, no, you don't need to bash because these revolts are against the institutions. So sometimes politicians get wise and say, no, you don't need to bash them on the streets. You vote for me, put me at the head of a swamp, and I'll drain the swamp. I will, I will bash at the institutions. And that is more or less the framework uh, that the book was written on. I, I wrote it. I threw it, essentially heaved it on Amazon as an ebook in 2014. Uh, then, of course, 2016 happened uh, with first Brexit and then uh, Trump. And it just, people went a little crazy. And they all said that I had predicted Trump. Of course, if you read the book, you said, you'll you see that I never make predictions. I, I worked at CIA. Uh, prophecy is uh, the business model of CIA. And it works only as long as tomorrow looks like yesterday. So I made no predictions in the book. I just laid out a framework that seemed to make sense and explain somewhat what happened in 2016. Um, uh, the book was picked up by Stripe Press. Uh, and I, there was a second edition, which uh, I got to write about Trump, and I got to write about Brexit. And I added a, a long, long essay on, on, on what had transpired since 2014. And that was published at the very end of 2018. Uh, and that's the book that's out there now. And ever since then, of course, I've been more or less writing on this on the subject.
Yes, well, it, being proved right when you didn't even make any predictions is uh, certainly an accomplishment. Uh, so, uh, well done there. Let me. So, let's talk a little bit about how this applies to what we've seen in the past couple of weeks, which is really kind of remarkable. Uh, there obviously are parallels, but it's hard to think of anything that has unfolded quite the way that the last couple of weeks have, where you have a, a tragic, heartbreaking situation in Minnesota with the death of George Floyd. There's videotape of it, you know, that very that enrages a lot of people. Uh, but of course, uh, that's not new. Uh, it's not new that people have died uh, at the hands of police in questionable circumstances. It's not even new that there are viral videos about it. But in this case, uh, for whatever reason, that not only sparks widespread uh, protests and riots in Minneapolis, where it occurred, but very quickly you get that spreading to uh, just about every major city and some minor cities and towns in the United States. And then it goes worldwide, you, you know, London, Berlin, Tokyo, right? All sorts of places, including places where uh, I, police shootings are not really an issue. Uh, there's not a significant local black population because uh, there's a racial dynamic going on. So, so what, I mean, how does that work? How is it that what... If it had happened in the 1980s and 1990s, either would have been a non-story or would have been confined to the locality where it occurred, has, has kind of spread very quickly throughout the globe like that. Well, first of all, I, I, you know, to, be, to be a good scholar, I have to say there's always an element of randomness uh, in, in these incidents. Uh, as to how they are um, perceived and how they are reacted to. This particular one, though, I mean, I honestly don't think anybody should be surprised at this. I, I'm kind of, I am surprised that people are so surprised because um, there's absolutely nothing different about what's happening here other than it's happening here, okay? Whereas before it was happening in Santiago, Chile, or in Paris, France, or in Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, and so you can watch it with a bit of detachment and everything that happens in this country, everybody in the world is watching and wants to copy. But I mean, the way I would look at it is, as I said before, there was a, um, a tremendous tide of, I mean, the word anger is probably wrong, but there was certainly a, a, a lot of um, a wish for change among the public. And it really translates into a sort of uh, political anger, I guess you would call it. Um, uh, all around the world uh, against the institutions of, of uh, modern government. And by the way, they seem to make no distinction about which form of modern government. There, were, there was anger against dictators, as in Somalia. There was anger against sort of semi-elected, but kind of, you know, half, half here, half there people, as in, and it's in Bolivia. And there was anger against perfectly democratic countries, as in Chile and, and in France. So you had this going in the year 2019 in, a, in a, uh, what I consider to be a, 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 
an exponential curve almost. Is, we, we like to talk about exponential these days. Uh, and, then, and then you slammed the artificial lid of the pandemic lockdown on top of this sociopolitical cauldron. You're saying, no, no, everybody go home. Okay, well, for the last three months, pressure has been building and it has just got a, the minute that lid cracked open, it has just exploded. And one way to look at these particular protests is that they are an explosion. And I think the rest of the world is picking up on them because they also have been sitting at home and they also have been seething. And suddenly here you have a reason to get out on the street and, and demonstrate your, your anger at the way the institutions are, even in your country. It probably has nothing to do with George Floyd. And if you're demonstrating in New Zealand, I ask myself, you know, what, what are you demonstrating about? Well, it's probably not George Floyd, but you probably there are things about, about the way the institutions work in your country that you are uh, protesting. Um, and I, 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 as I said, this is not something that is particularly different or new. It's been happening all over the world. The difference is it's, it's now happening here. Yes, and I, I should add, regular listeners of our program will recall that in October of last year, we did an episode with your son, Adam Gurry, on right. the protest, this mass protest in from places ranging from Hong Kong to Chile, right. to, uh, Lebanon, and what you know what what the underlying mechanism would be. Because you're right, some of them seem to involve very weighty issues of uh, government structure, and then. In Chile, it was about uh, a subway fare increase. You know, four percent. You have a, a thriving economy for for a full generation. You had uh, a very highly thought of democracy with alternating parties and different uh, beliefs and so forth. Clean, uh, very very little corruption. Four percent increase in mass transit fare and. Basically, the country was paralyzed until the pandemic hit. So it was paralyzed all over again. But I mean, there were protests that uh, someone, like a million people in the streets of Santiago. So uh, what were they protesting? It wasn't that 4%. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting ideas in your book is that when you have these sorts of Populist, you know, mass populist movements, whether they're they're actually either political or in the protest space, that they are, in a way, inherently negative, and in that people can agree on what they're against, but they are unable, for various reasons, to come up with any sort of concrete, positive program. I mean, it, it, beyond just you know, we need a new system or vague abstractions like that, right? Yeah. So that is, seems to, there are some issues there, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Me, well, you can respond to that if you want, or I can try and reformulate the. No, I think I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, I, I, that's. I, I mean, I analyze that. There is a very remarkable similarity in a lot of these protests. They're not all of them identical. The causes are very different. The cultures are different. I mean, if you want to look at it from an you know idealistic perspective, um, the ideals 
and the, the 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 righteousness uh that's very different if you're demonstrated in hong kong i get it i mean i see what you're doing you're demonstrating in mogadishu against a terrible dictator i really get it if you're demonstrating in santiago i'm having trouble getting it right but once you grant that there are differences there is a remarkable similarity uh in, in these in the structure of these protests and and, and to get at why that is you have to sort of analyze what the public is in the digital era. Uh, there is, the, the public is many, it's not one. The digital era has been a great fragmenter. That, that mass audience that I talked about earlier um, was kind of like this gigantic mirror in which we all saw ourselves reflected. Well, that mirror has kind of toppled and, and shattered and the public kind of inhabits the little broken pieces on the floor, okay? so. Um, if you ever so, if you want to create a, uh, a, a movement in which you can unify and mobilize uh, these very fractured war bands, I call them sometimes, that that seem to populate the, the, the political landscape, um, saying this is the thing I want to do, this is my proposal to change, you will immediately get into a rant war, right? Because everybody around you says, no, this is not what I, well, I want. Something very different, and so you can you can. As, as these things happen almost always online, end up in this this uh, basically war over the brands. Um, but if you say over some incident, it could be 4% uh, increase in, in the fear of, of mass transit. It can be something as, as terrible and, and uh, moving as, as the death of George Floyd on video. But if you say, well, let's, let's just be against, let's, let's turn against, well, there is this very powerful impulse. The public is against. That is what it is, okay? Um, it is against the institutions. It is against the elites that run the institutions. It wants to bash at them. It does not particularly want to take power. I mean, in my day, I am not a young man. In my day, when I was a young man, if you were a radical, you were dreaming of taking power so you could impose an ideology, so you can impose your programs, and so forth. The public today has no organization, it has no ideology, it has no programs, it just has this very powerful impulse against, and it wants to bash and smash at the institutions. Um, so when, in many cases, uh, there, was, there was a particular revolt in, in Israel that um, essentially um, uh, it was large and influential enough that that it, it um, um, created uh, the government created a uh, commission to ask the, the protesters, well, "What is it that you want?" And the protesters, half of them said a hundred things, and the other half said, "We don't even want to talk with you. Who are you? You're the government. We hate you." But the entire protests were aimed at the government. And we're aimed at the government doing something, at the, at the government actually leading some radical change without definition of it. So, yeah, I think the public is um, uh, very much um, uh, angry. It is very much uh, against, but it is structurally, for very structural reasons. If we ever, if, if uh, for example, there's uh, these current protests today on the, on the streets of the United States, uh, said, well, let's, these are the fundamental changes that we want to make. You will immediately find a babble of voices say, well, what about this? What about that? What about the other? And and you will find this movement disintegrate into its component of war bands. Yeah. So uh, 
one of the things that I have done during my quarantine time, because I had a lot more time on my hands in some respects, I wasn't leaving the house, is I revisited some of the older authors. Mm -hmm. And I recall Machiavelli talks about uh, basically kind of the Renaissance equivalent of these sorts of protest mass uprisings of various sorts. And his perspective on it was that for uh, an uprising like this to be successful in its aims or achieve anything, it needed to have leaders, right? People who could negotiate with the authorities or who were capable of taking power and uh, implementing their own plan. And of course, Machiavelli in his own way thinks that the proper lesson from this is that you just need to find the leaders and kill them. And then of course, everybody else will just kind of disperse. Now though, we really do seem to, these movements do seem to be pretty much leaderless. And so I wonder whether you think that uh, that means that they are ultimately they're just going to burn out or fade away or is there something about the technological changes and informational changes that would allow them to sustain themselves more than in the past Uh, or maybe you just disagree with Machiavelli I don't know I I think um, you can have a protest without leaders that overthrows a leader that's what happened in Egypt that's happened elsewhere. It happened in, in Somalia. Uh, it happened in Bogota. I mean, in Bolivia. Um, you can have a protest that is intense enough that without having any particular positive program, it is against the leader and has paralyzed the country and circumstances are such that the leader either resigns or is forced out. That is a possibility. Uh, many of these protests do peter out. I mean, you look at the yellow vests, they're still kind of struggling on in uh, in France, but they were completely incoherent in their demands, which were everything. They wanted everything and nothing. Uh, and they, they, at a certain moment at their peak, they had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Paris and tremendous support from uh, the general public in, in, in France. And now they're much more of a minor factor, if, if anything at all. Uh, several others, I can tell you, have, have also dissipated with... You know, they always leave some mark. You can't have a gigantic movement that storms a capital city and not leave some mark behind. But considering what at the moment seemed like almost a revolutionary moment, the uh, what has left, befi- left behind is, is very minor by comparison. Certainly you have the fact that sometimes these movements unite behind actual leaders, uh, populists. Um, that is also kind of tricky. Because if you're a populist leader, you have to now become the head of a government that is essentially the institution that you're against. And so if you really and truly want to destroy that institution while you are heading it, you're probably going to destroy the economy. You're probably going to create all kinds of conflicts and noise and whatnot. And your popularity as a whole is going to decline. But on the other hand, if you sell out and and, and, uh, transact with the elites, your entire political base will abandon you. So it's, it's a tricky proposition. A few have done it to some extent, uh, but you know, I think Trump has done it. I think President Obama, who's never given credit for being a populist, he did it in his own way. 
others have tried with less success. Uh, it is hard to have a revolutionary impact when you don't have a program. And in that regard, I think Machiavelli was talking about a much simpler time in which power was something that you held in, in its own uh, sake. So just having power was the end result. Today, we think of power as an instrument to do something, to change something. And if you don't have a program of change, then once you have power, what do you do? I mean, honestly, uh, many times, as I think with Trump, if you look at what most of what Trump has done is you could you could overlay what any normal um, Republican conservative president would have done, and there are minor differences. Trump Trump's uh, differences are all of style of rhetoric. Uh, yeah, I I would certainly agree with that. Um, so obviously there is um, there's a, a famous French. Novelist uh, Michel Welbeck. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah, uh, who has um, uh, written some interesting stuff uh, related to these issues? But he had a he had an essay that appeared. Oh, I guess it was about the, about a month ago. Uh, about it was more about the pandemic than about anything with this unrest. But I think he kind of, in his own way, summed it up, which was. His prediction was that after this is all over, the world will be the same but worse. Right? <laughs> well, that's him. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, all, his, all his novels kind of say the same thing. Yeah, that's that's right. Yes, yes, they're, they're, <laughs> they are uh, uh, delightfully bleak in their own way. Yes, yes. Uh, and you know, I think that uh, that's that's certainly a possibility, perhaps even a likelihood, but. I would like to consider the possibility of a better world. So if it's true that the problem that we have is that we are dealing with 20th century institutions yes. in a 21st century information environment, right? So there's a mismatch. Right. Uh, one thing to do, theoretically, we could say, well, let's go back to the 20th century information environment. Uh, I, I don't know that it would be possible, but uh, entirely, but you know, you could, the, the president sometimes seems like he wants to just shut down Twitter and Facebook. And, and on some days, I'm not entirely sure that that would be a bad thing. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but assuming that that, you know, we'll leave that out there as, as uh, plan B, but let's talk about a plan C, assuming that the new information environment is here to stay. What you know? What can we do to update our governing, business, media? You know, our institutional uh, framework. You know, so so that it is more consonant with the world that we're living in now. Okay, so you have to ask yourself, what is that world that we live in right now? And it's a world that's very fast and very flat, right? I mean, um, I I can get. I mean, I'm a happily married man, but if I wanted to, I could get a girlfriend, I could get a car, I could get, you know, a trip to Texas uh, at the speed of light if I wanted to, right? Um, so when you have this this uh, fast, flat world, uh, which is holds true for much of society and a big chunk of the economy, and suddenly you turn to government and you're staring up at the Great Pyramid, you know, just standing there, enormous and immobile, right? And you're saying, well, these are the things we want. And the pyramid just kind of 
just stands there, right? So obviously, um, what you want is something that looks a lot less um, like like the Great Pyramid, and a lot more like an uh, Indianapolis uh, racing car, right? Uh, it, you want something that's flat and that's fast. Now. Uh, that's that's a statement of intent. I don't pretend to have like a blueprint that you could apply to the government, but some people have done some thinking about this, and you know we can talk about that if you want. Uh, sure, let's talk a little bit. I, I know that you have to run shortly, but uh, you know if there's if there's some broad ideas, uh, not necessarily claim, you know asking you to have the uh, magic elixir. <laughs> yeah, I mean. First of all, I would look at, are there any institutions that seem today to be doing well? And to my knowledge, it's really, there's really only one, and, and it's doing well in two very different ways. Um, uh, the military, for example, um, if you look at their... Um, approval ratings 60 years ago, and you look at their approval ratings today, a couple of little blips around the Vietnam War, and that's about it. Everybody approves of the military. So you have to ask, how did they get there? The military uh, innovates in a very different way. You cannot ask that, that uh, Great Pyramid to just leap from here to there. It's just not going to happen. You need to do it in bits and pieces. And that's the way the military tends to think is they send out units, you know, they, send, they, they break out units, they try something new, they let it happen for a while. They allow a great deal of variety and they don't close down the answer as to how best to be organized for a particular um, you know, strategic or tactical situation. And then they look across uh, and they find, well, these are the lessons that we can now um, bring back and, and convert into our, our, our structural reforms so that we can meet the, the present and the future. And there's a, there's a book by uh, an author called Trent Hone, H-O-N-E, called um, Learning War. It talks about how the Navy in particular learned the lessons of uh, you know, this very ch different changing world between the Spanish-American War at the beginning of World War II and how these were applied in, in that terrible moment after Pearl Harbor in World War II and how without those lessons, those innovations, uh, the Navy could not have possibly won the war in the Pacific as, as thoroughly and as quickly as it did. Um, so that's one way that the military, I think, uh, serves as a model. There's another one, and it, and it entails another uh, another book that, that is a favorite of mine. Um, Yuval Levin has a book called A Time to Build. Mm -hmm. and, and he basically is, is a critique of the institutions. And his critique is that institutions, all of them, government, the media, used to be formative. They used to form the person's who were inside of them. So if you were Walter Cronkite, way back when, anchor man of, of uh, um, CBS News, you had been formed in a culture of you know, being a reporter, starting as a, as a young cub reporter, being more responsible. You basically embodied all the principles of base, uh, both uh, CBS News and of uh, American journalism as a whole, right? You were shaped by those things. Today, he says, informations are performative. People basically use them as platform for self-expression. It's kind of like being a movie star or something. And I think when you look at the military, it is the last institution 
that that uh, is formative. You go through the military, I think, because it's a matter of life and death. They form you. You are shaped by it. Everybody in the military, and, and it has been my own personal experience, by the way, is that they are the smartest institution in government. Uh, uh, it, everybody in the military goes through this shaping process that is so powerful, and everybody you talk to has a piece of it. You know, they're all different; they're individuals, but they have a. They reflect the fact that they are members of the U.S. military in, a, in very specific ways. So, I mean, learn from that. Learn from that experience. We do have at least one functional institution. It's the military. Now, it's a very special one, but you can you can learn from it. Okay. All right. Uh, my hope is that the next time we have you on the show, uh, we can talk about music or something. Uh, <laughs> it, won't be, it won't be necessary. But uh, Martin Gurry, uh, if you haven't... Uh, got a copy of The Revolt of the Public, uh, you should definitely read that. It's an important book, uh, even if it doesn't predict what's going to happen exactly. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been fun as always. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to The Urban Cowboys.